welcome Chicago cohort. How you know God is good? Amen. He's a good, good father. That's why I'm not leading worship. Anywho, isn't God good? Is the Lord speaking to you, Jack A? Amen. I'm glad he is. Amen. He's definitely speaking to me. So we're going to continue our study of the book of Romans. Last Amen. week we were in Romans chapter 7, which is the, the meat of the sanctification sandwich. Romans 6 being the top bun, and then Romans 8 being the other side of the bun. So we're looking forward to hearing a great word about life in the Spirit, what it means to walk in the Spirit, what it means to walk in the flesh. And then we're going to get this wonderful crescendo in the, in the latter half of the chapter, starting in verse 18, and, and it's going to culminate in, in how nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. I'm excited to hear this message. It's going to be powerful. A lot of powerful texts we'll be studying today. Let's welcome up our pastor, Amen. Joe Wyrostek. Thank you. You guys are so nice. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. And just want to make sure everybody can hear me online. It's always fun working with technology. Romans chapter 8 is going to be good today, guys. All right. Romans chapter 8 is exactly like Jared said. It kind of like does my introduction for me every week, which I think is cool. So let's just get right into reading it. One of the things I do want to say before we start reading it is it's really cool when you've built up the point of Paul without him getting to the built up point. That really shows you're getting where he's going. Now, obviously, we've already read the book of Romans before, you know, and I've read it before I preached on it. I've actually done a whole class on it. So it's good that I'm getting there ahead of time. But now let's actually see him go through it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. First part will be about sanctification, and then the other part will be about future glory and being more than conquerors. This is the part, again, about sanctification that we talked about last week. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You guys know what that means now, right? We're set free from the law of sin and death because of what Jesus did. And where did the law of sin and death reside? Where was its power in us? In the flesh. But yes, in the law. You could have said both, but uh, I think once I clarified in us, the, the law of sin and death worked in the law through our flesh. So the law of sin and death would not have been a law if the law wouldn't have been given to us first and if our flesh failed at it. If we in our flesh could keep the law, it wouldn't have turned into the law of sin and death. But since we couldn't keep it in our flesh, the law turned to the law of sin and death. And Paul's very clear to say, does that make the law sinful? No, the law is not sinful. What was meant for good in the law became bad for us. You guys get the difference, right? Wonderful. And those who are online, too, feel free to ask questions. Sometimes I forget that we have our friends watching us online because I'm always speaking to the class here. But those who are online, whether you're from the church online or from the other extension sites that we have that are online, please ask questions, guys. Uh, if Amy, Catherine, or the other students have questions, go ahead and ask them. We'd love to answer them if I, uh, if I can see it. So we'll just have Jared. Will you always do me a favor now from this point on? Check our feed. Thank you. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. See, that's where you know you have the right answer because Paul says it now. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So that's where we learned yesterday in our Easter service is where does the sin go? 
Where does the indebtedness go? Where does evil go? It goes on the sacrifice of God, uh, the sacrifice of Jesus, the one that, that he prepared for us. Now, the question might be, well, then, if it's all there, then why is there still a hell? Is it paid for twice? That's a deep question if you think about it. Because if you go, uh, yeah, I believe all sin is paid for on the cross. All evil is dealt with there. Well, then why would there be a hell? That's kind of an argument from a universalist. I've heard them use that as well. And kind of like an atheist argument is if there's still a hell after the cross, why is that? I thought it was all taken care of on the cross. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily answer that philosophical question because it's never posed that way, but the information of the Bible is given to us. So what it looks like is that the legal indebtedness is taken on the cross so that it is no longer attributed to us, but the evil itself is put into hell. But if evil, because that's God's way of getting rid of it, through the cross, is now he kicks it off the earth through hell. Because we could never have gotten rid of evil without Jesus having authority over death, hell, and the grave, right? He has authority over that, very important. So what does Jesus do with it now that he owns it? And by the way, my friend used to work with debt collecting. He would buy all the debts for a certain price and try to get the debts back. So Jesus buys all of our debts with his blood. He pays for it. Now he has the authority over it. What does he do? He casts it into hell. But if you, um, so if you come to Jesus and you accept Christ, your sins are paid for and you don't have to go into the garbage with it. Does everybody get that? You don't have to go to the, go to, go to the garbage dump. You got the garbage out of you. You can hang, hang out with God. He's determining where the garbage, where the sin goes. But if you're still a sinner and you didn't let Jesus take away your indebtedness, now you are sent to hell with the garbage because at, at, at your core, you're evil. So when people say, why doesn't God get rid of evil? Because he would have to get rid of you. If he did get rid of evil without the cross, it would be all of us going to hell, all of us being obliterated for eternity. Now, sometimes people bring up a good point right here. Could he have annihilated us? That's a good point. And yes, he could have. And so there are good Christians. I say good because they have all the fundamentals, and they're in the Christian family, and they believe in punishment and torment just like us, they just believe it ends at some point, and the wicked are annihilated. That's called annihilationism. Annihilationism. And Jehovah Witnesses share a similar point of view, but these guys are very clear. We believe that hell goes on, and people are tormented. Hell is worse for Hitler than it is for others, and it goes on and on and on and on. But at some point, it ends. Now, the, if, when they ask that question, could God do that? We have to answer yes, God could have done that. There's no reason why he couldn't have annihilated everything or he could have set it up that it would be annihilated, but he doesn't teach us that. All we have in the revealed word of God is that it's everlasting. And one of the places since I brought us here, don't you love rabbit trails? Since I brought us here, let's go to Matthew chapter 25 and I'll show you one of the best passages to refute annihilationism. Matthew chapter 5. So this is not universalism. This is not they ultimately get saved. This is they get punished, they get tormented, they're in hell, but then hell has an end. Eternity is not continually people being tormented in their mind. Uh, hell is a place that actually ends. But look at Matthew chapter 25, sheep and goats. Here at the end of verse 46, it says, They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal what? 
eternal life. The word, therefore, eternal, just right-click on it for me, please, should be eons. Uh, yeah, right-click on it now so we can get it to come up here. Thank you. Should be, uh, yeah, aeonies, aeon, rather. I was pronouncing it in the English way. Uh, but age, eternal. And so any argument they make about the age or the time period of punishment ending it has to be the same then applied to life. Okay, so move off that so we can see the passage, please. So the same length of punishment is the same length of life. The same length of life is the same length of punishment. Because we see that word is there. And just go up to punishment so you can see it's the same exact Greek word. right? Uh, not punishment, I'm sorry. The same word eternal before punishment. You'll see eternal life and eternal punishment both have the same exact word Aeon, aeon. Is it not right clicking for you? Is it running slow right now? I understand. You can see it's the same one. Just uh, wait for it. Let's right click it. Try it again. There it goes. Everybody see it? And in the English, it's the same word eternal. Eternal punishment, eternal life. So uh, annihilationism would be what we would consider a possibility, a possible world that God could have created but it wasn't the one he actualized. Not all worlds for God are possible because God does not contradict himself. He's not a man that he should lie. So you're not going to have a world where there can be a married bachelor. God is not going to allow there to be such a world, okay? So you're not going to have that. You're not going to have a world where you can make a square circle. Those are not feasible worlds. Uh, excuse me, they're not possible worlds because they're not feasible worlds. There are feasible worlds that are possible, but they are not actual. There could be a world where God made uh, humans to fly and birds to walk. That's feasible and possible. Birds could have been shaped differently. Humans could have been shaped differently. Do you guys get that? That is feasible and it's possible. There are some things that are feasible but not possible. He could have made a world where <clears throat> he could have, I, I, excuse me, I can imagine a world where good people tell lies. I'm a good person. I tell a lie. I could see that being feasible, but it wouldn't be possible for it to be called good in the way that God calls it good because it would be contradicting towards his nature. But I have the, uh, in some ways, not it's not even feasible if I'm using his definition. I can get lost in my own words here, you know. I'm trying to think of something that's feasible but not possible. Can you think of something that would not be possible? Because the only things that would not be possible would be things that would be illogical or against God's nature. So it looks like all feasible and possible things would have to be the same. Let me not go beyond my depth here, okay? Let's go back to the scriptures. Could God have created a world where sinners were annihilated? Yes, but did he? No, how do we know? The Bible tells us so, right? That You could just answer, the Bible tells us so. So now going back to why, why I was here is because people may ask, if Jesus took away sin, why do people still go to hell? Is that a double payment? Jesus paid and now they paid. No, Jesus paid once and then he says what he'll do with hell and all those who still have uh, what he will do with evil. 
and all those who have evil go where he sends them. But he paid to do that. It's his right. He paid the debt. Is everybody with me on that? Okay, amen. Verse 4. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Get a little deep there. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's only those who live according to the Spirit that get the opportunity to put the law to death and now live a new life. You can't put the law to death or overcome the law of sin and death in your flesh. That's like trying to give yourself a heart transplant with your own heart. You're only giving yourself what you already had. Or trying to give you a blood trans- yourself a blood transfusion from your right arm to your left arm. Only the Spirit can deliver you from the power of sin and death and the bondage of the law. And so in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he initiates a new covenant that now the Spirit will enact in us. Here's another possibility. Could he have at the resurrection, kept us going in the old covenant, but now be spiritually empowered to do it. Yes, if he wanted it to be that way, he could have kept us with the dietary law, kept us with a priesthood. And in some ways, when you read the prophets of the Old Testament, the kingdom on earth looks very much like that, doesn't it? Now, there's two points of view with that, and I've listened to Dr. Michael Brown say he doesn't know which one it is, and he's a scholar of the Hebrew Scriptures, and so I don't really know which one it is. Um, And that is, either the Old Testament prophets are only using the language of the Old Covenant to describe the kingdom to come because that's all they have. They, they can only describe sacrifice as a real sacrifice. They can't see it through the eyes of Jesus yet, or through the, through the person of Jesus yet. So when they talk about making sacrifices in the new temple reigning with God on earth, that God had limited, limited them to what they could see. They're seeing animals, but it's really Jesus, the sacrifice he made once and for all. And you can almost get that picture in Revelation. What do we see? Like a lamb that was slain. That's what we see when we see Jesus, you know. So maybe they only got to see, like if you see kind of like those holograms, maybe they only got to see the one picture like of it looking like an animal, but now we can kind of twist it a little bit. You know, you twist the holograms, now you see Jesus, you know, and then you go back, you see the lamb, then you see Jesus, and then you see the lamb. You get it? So maybe in the Old Testament, they're just describing everything new covenant, but they only have the language of the old covenant, lamb, sacrifice, temple, and all of that. Or... In the millennial reign, this is where we know for sure this language is used, in the millennial reign, there's still people here and there's still a a temple and and people are, are coming to worship God there and they're making sacrifices and all that. In the millennial reign, God brings back the entire thing and now we live like how the Jews were meant to live but never could. So technically we go from the old covenant to the new covenant to now a new old covenant, what I was just describing before. So could it have happened? Yeah. But for whatever reason, he has kept us now in a new covenant, which is different than the old covenant because he fulfilled it. But once again, since he fulfilled it, he can bring it back out at any time. It's just that the animals and so forth would never be a part of our forgiveness. They would never be the reason why we are forgiven. If we are forgiven in the old covenant, uh, in the new covenant, on the millennial reign, it's only because of Jesus. The animal sacrifices would just be like our example of what Jesus did. So, in other words, instead of uh, being like the Old Te- Testament saints who looked at the, uh, the the sacrifices looking forward to Jesus, we would look at the sacrifices looking back through Jesus. 
you know, just like how we celebrate things. We'll, we'll celebrate fireworks, looking back towards the, the wars and all of those things. We're, we're like shooting them off. And so we'd be killing things going, oh, yeah, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. And they were kind of looking forward to it going, one day the Messiah will do that. One day the Messiah will do that. It could be a very, much, uh, very much a possibility. But I want to be clear that the life of the Spirit is not one now of the letter of the Old Testament law. It's fulfilling the law of Christ, the, the new covenant. Now, amen. Let's go to verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. We've already been through this, haven't we? By doing all the work we did before, we're now ready to just go through this a little bit quickly. You are now born again. The Spirit is inside of you. Your soul, a part, your mind is a part of your soul, decides now, do I set my mind on the things of the Spirit and keep living for Jesus, or do I keep it on the things of the flesh? That's our decision. What are you going to do, spirit or flesh? Spirit, right? The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. And so often a Calvinist will say, well, you see, this means you cannot be saved until you're regenerated first. Because in your flesh you can't do one good thing. But the Bible says faith is not of works. So we're not doing faith of our own self. We're just making a choice that God has initiated by his provenient grace. So let's not get it twisted. But then they'll say, well, if you're in the flesh, you still can't please God. And choosing God, even just choosing faith, is something you can't do in the flesh. And we go, that's right. We're not choosing God in the flesh. We're choosing God in the spirit. You see, for the, Christ, uh, for the sinner to become a Christian, they have to acknowledge the Spirit and let the Spirit lead them to Christ. We're not saving ourselves. It is the Father that's drawing us. We believe that. We're not resisting that. And then we can bring it back to them like this. Well, are you spiritually born again now? And they'll go, yep, I'm spiritually born again now. And then we'll say, have you ever minded the flesh? Because if you're saying... Before I'm a sinner, I can't mind the spirit to be saved because I'm only going to ever mind the flesh. Then now that you're a Christian, it would mean that you could never mind the flesh. Now as a spirit-filled Christian, I would never be able to mind the flesh. But is that what it says? No, I can mind the flesh even as a Christian now that I have the spirit. But whenever my mind is on the flesh, it will never please God. The mindset of flesh will never please God. So if you right now, as a Christian, start minding the flesh, you will never please God again from this day forward. But if you, as a Christian, repent for the times you've minded the flesh and then place your mind back on the spirit, you can be forgiven and continue your walk with Christ. Romans chapter 11 says you can be cut off or you can be engrafted in. Now, some people might say, well, how often do we come in and out of Christ based on those decisions? To me, just sinning is not coming out of Christ. I can sin in Christ and God be patient with me and then bring that fleshly thing up to me and give me you know, time to repent. But as we've learned before in Hebrews 3, it's the unrepentant, sinful heart that turns hard and goes away from God. So have you ever had a mindset of flesh and God be patient with you? Come on, have you ever had a mindset on the flesh and impatient? And this, just look at that word, mindset. Mind set. Have you ever had the mind set on the flesh? The mindset of flesh. 
Have you? Yes. And has God been patient with you? Yes, and he convicts. And then you repent, and then you put your mind on the spirit, the default position of the Christian. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. So what should be the default for the Christian? The default for the Christian is spirit of God is in us, our mind is on the spirit. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Very simple. If you're not born again by the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, that's why it's going to die, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So your body's dying, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Do you get it? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. Verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Resurrection Sunday. Our resurrection is coming. So our body is dying now, but our spirit is alive. One day our body will die, and we will resurrect like Christ resurrected. That's the fulfillment of the gospel Paul's been preaching since Romans 1.16. Come on. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. He's speaking to Christians. Right now, you are in a similar state to Adam and Eve. Not exactly, because Adam and Eve didn't have a perfect body. But you now have a perfect spirit like how Adam and Eve do, but you still carry around this body of death. So now, if you can uh, put your mind on the flesh and continue that way, you'll die and get cut off. So, so many times, the, the, even the Baptist, who's not a Calvinist, who believes in once saved, always saved, like a Calvinist, will say, how could a spirit born again life ever die? That doesn't even make any sense. Well, how did Adam and Eve's spirit die? How did they suffer death? He says, you, when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they fall over dead physically the moment they ate from that fruit? No, we know that death came into their body and eventually death had its way, but what died was their spirit and their relationship with God. That's what Ephesians is talking about. You were dead in your trespasses, right? And so that's why it says you can now die again. Just like you had to be born again, you can die again and go right back to your state. Peter talks about that. It's like a dog returning to its vomit, he said. Paul talks about people shipwrecking their faith. Uh, the book of Revelation talks about them being spit out of God's mouth or their crown being taken for, from them. And so we are not to let our hearts become hardened and give back into the flesh and die from our regenerated state. We are to remain in our regenerated state by following the Spirit. Isn't that awesome? Amen. Amen. Verse 13, for if you live according to flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Body and flesh, back and forth. Could there be any confusion of what he's talking about? He is literally talking about your body. Do you see the argument now in its full form, Jared? If somebody goes, no, it just can't be the mere body, then why is Paul bringing up resurrection over and over again in it? The point is the mere body by itself, the flesh, has enough evil in it and has enough autopilot in it to divert you from the things of God. And I've said it once and I'll say it again. How much autopilot is in an animal? 
for it to do all that it does by instinct and, and its own fleshly carnal desires. And the more complex the animal is, the more complex the emotions are in that animal. Dogs can be jealous. Dogs can be bitter. Can they, can they slander? No, because they don't have the words to talk. But they're complex enough to do all that. Well, if we're complex enough animals, uh, say, say creation, not animals, but uh, creatures that we can talk, shouldn't we suspect, suspect that our brain could give us thoughts to, to make us, not to make us, but to tempt us to say words we don't want to say? Your brain is the most powerful art organ on the planet. There is no organ more powerful than the human brain. And it was made to function perfectly with the mind of the soul. Your soul is your mind, will, and emotion, and your brain and your nerves and your feelings are in the physical. That's your body. That's your flesh. Your soul, mind, will, and emotions have been born again. And your, soul, and your body is where your soul now lives, and your body is dying, and it has the penalty of sin on it, and it can guide you towards sin if you don't count it as dead. That's why it says now, look, in verse 12, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's how we know the children of God are. The Spirit who, excuse me, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. So you, um, start again, sorry, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, talking about the Holy Spirit, notice he's a him, not an it, we cry, Abba, Father. You see the Trinity there? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with who? Christ. See, we're co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? We are a new humanity made in the image of God like Christ. We participate in the divine nature like Christ. Christ was God in man. Now God is in all men. Because of Christ, but never outside of Christ, and we never become little gods like Christ. We share in Christ. Still his, but we share in it. Do you get it? I can share things with you, but they're still mine. You can share things with you, never still mine. I know we give things away here, but you get my point. He is sharing it with us, but it is still his. Now it says in verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So suffering will come a part of life. And we saw that in Philippians 3 as well. He wants to know the power of the resurrection and he also wants to know the sufferings of Christ. Now he's going to segue into in this world as he suffers for Christ, the kind of mindset he's going to have. He's going to have joy in his sufferings. But does everybody see how the sanctification message has now been concluded? There it is. It started right at 6, worked its way through all the way to 7, into 8. Paul is not a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Chapter 7, 
is only a biographical reconstruction talking about how he used to be, now knowing the mindset of that person, and he's talking about it in the present. Like he understands what he was going through back then. But he's no longer a slave to sin. He's a slave to righteousness. He's born again, not under the law of sin and death, under the law of Christ, following the Spirit, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Where is the flesh? It's your body. Where is the body? It's your flesh. I mean, it's the same thing being described in two different ways. To summarize Romans 4 and 5, it's we're saved by faith. Let's just go through it quickly. Romans 1 says that, that even non-believers have a sense of the gospel uh, because they have a conscience, and if they reach out to what they have, God will give them more. But the fullness of the gospel is in Jesus, and Paul is preaching it to Jew and Gentile alike. Romans chapter 2 says the Jews know better than the Gentile when he doesn't keep the commands of God. He's even worse. He's a hypocrite. Romans chapter 3 says everybody in the whole world is under the power of sin. Nobody can even keep the law. And then in Romans chapter 4 and 5, Abraham is the example of the pre-law salvation that we get by faith before the law was ever given to to, uh, Abraham, before uh, circumcision or sacrifice was ever given, he saved by faith. And that's our example, even though now the Jews were doing all of those things, that was never what they were saved by. And in Christ, we do a lot of good things, but we're not saved by it, we're saved by faith. So Jew and Gentile saved by faith. And then in uh, Romans chapter six, we're told that we're not under the slave master of the devil and sin anymore. In Romans chapter seven, he describes what it's like to be under the slave master of sin, trying to do the law without the without the power of Christ, and now here concluding in 8, he says what it's like to live for Christ in the spirit, free from your flesh, free from the law of sin and death. Amen? Amen. Now, suffering for Jesus, how we're supposed to do it and go through troubles in this world. Look at verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, notice, his suffering is not sin. That's what always used to discourage me when I would listen to T.D. Jakes preach sometimes because he'd be like, y'all going through it, and I know God's going to make a way. Some of you just committed an affair yesterday, but God's got you. Others of you are fighting cancer. God's got you. And it's like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, uh, The person having the affair is put into the same category of the person having cancer. Uh, Yes, God's got us and can deliver us, but there's two different things happening here. The one that had the affair is not suffering like the one who had cancer. The one who has cancer did not deserve it, do one thing for it. It just is what it is. The one that is suffering in their sin is because of their own decisions. And they shouldn't be there anymore. They shouldn't live that way anymore. They're in a jail cell locked from the inside. Isn't that something, locked from the inside? It's like they can come out at any time. And so I want to be careful when I say this. It's not that... We want to look down uh, on people who have bondages because that is somewhat of good preaching. If you look to Luke chapter 4, let's go there, verse 17, Jesus puts it all together. And it's okay to get into what we call a preacher's run. You're going to run on a little bit, you know. But I don't think it's helpful when you're trying to teach people how to live right. It's, It's throwing it into categories where it doesn't belong Look at it there, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. This is Isaiah 61. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor, and without Christ we're all poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners. See, see, there it is. Prisoners in bondage to sin. And what? Recovery of sight to the blind, or for the blind. There's healing. 
right? Isn't that good? And then in the King James, it says to heal the brokenhearted, emotional issues. That's good preaching, isn't it? To set the oppressed free, those who may be oppressed or in some kind of a slave situation or a, a, an abusive situation, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Is it good preaching to say Jesus does all of these things? Yes, but we have to be careful when we're saying that the person who is a slave to sin is being set free in the same way the one's being healed of blinded eyes because the one with blinded eyes has not chosen such a path. That person is there because of sickness. The one who's in bondage to sin has done that of their own path, of their own choosing, and you don't go to hell for being blind, but you can go to hell for having sin in your life, unrepentant sin, being in prison. Amen? Amen. I got this on a little bit weird. If you see me messing with it, I won't do it that way again, but just to let you know I'm twitching over here, okay? Go back to Romans 8, verse 19. For the creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Bethany, will you go into my office and play with that, please? Thank you. For the creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That's us. Somebody say, that's me. See, the world wants to see us come back. Can I tell you what a lot of good prophets and preachers have said? When we come back, we make the weather right. When we come back, we bring peace among the animals. In actuality, it's God through man that restores all of creation back to its natural order. Sickness will be cured and and done away with. Isn't that beautiful? So the idea isn't that God just makes creation new again just by, you know, zapping his finger and just like, there it all is, you know. Like he's like one of Oprah Winfrey's designers, you know. I'm just going to do this and sashay all over the place. No, 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 no. What Jesus does is he goes, Des, fix the medical community. Jackie, fix the education community. Jared, calm the animals. Go get out there and tell them to calm down. Uh, Will, control the weather. It needs to be better in Chicago today. Uh, Oscar, get justice established again. I pointed to Will looking at I, t- I said, Will, looking at you. One day, one day. God forgive me. God forgive me. You know, right here. Right? But seriously, TJ, change the thermostat on Chicago. Oscar, go establish justice. Will, go bring back the teenagers. It's going to be done through his people. The only thing I can compare this to in a way that I think gives us imagination and so forth is the Avengers. It's literally we're gods among men. And we don't want to say the word gods in a way to say we're now the God and that we get worship. But this is a taste of what it's like. The father said to Moses, I will make you like a god to Pharaoh. You will be like his God. And then Jesus even used this terminology, so please don't think I'm being blasphemy. He said, why is it you get mad that I'm called the Son of God? Give me that passage, please, Jared. He said, did, I not, uh, did not the Father say, ye are gods, ye are rulers with divine authority. Where's that passage that Jesus said, ye are gods? Let's go to John 10. Psalm 82.6, quoted by Jesus in, Psalm, uh, in, in John 10.4. John 10.34, thank you. I wonder if one day someone from the podcast or the live feed is going to be like, I want to hear the guy preach who keeps giving you the scriptures. 
I want to hear from that dude. Him and I are actually going head-to-head for a JBQ uh, thing we're doing with the kids now. We're going to start doing Bible quizzes with them. They're going to start competing around the city and state with the Assemblies of God, and it's going to be awesome. And uh, for a part of the uh, promotion for that, they're going to have us go head-to-head. And uh, I think I'm going to get beat pretty bad. At this point, I'm hoping to at least get two or three out of ten or however many we get because this brother has well passed me. I don't want him to think that, you know, yet, but I tease him that I can still get him. But if I'm going to be honest, I don't think I'm going to get him. I don't think so, dude. Okay, just don't hold back on me. Don't hold back. Don't feel sorry for me either because I will get competitive. You've been with me playing games. I'll get competitive. Just give it to Yeah, you tell him. Give it to him. Give it to him, Jared. Jesus said, is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and he sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am God's son. So we are God's, lowercase, Elohim, rulers in God's authority upon this earth. That is what Moses was to Pharaoh. In this context, that is what the judges of the tribes of Israel were. That is what we will be here. So the way I like to say it is God-like, godly, because we get thrown off by that language. We will be gods among men. But that is literally the actual Hebrew for it and the Greek. There is no way around it. It's just we, uh, because we're good... Like monotheist, uh, we don't like using the word gods. That just makes us go, get away, icky, gods. You shouldn't have said that word. But Jesus used the word. Are you not gods? And, and the psalmist used the words and did not the Holy Spirit inspire it, right? Um, I just like to say it like this. We will be God-like to the creation for the millennial reign. Let's go back to that passage. The whole creation is groaning for us to come and have our authority in Christ and set this thing in order. Verse 19, for the creation awaits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration and not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. So who did that? It was God who subjected the creation to weeds and to flooding and all of these things and to bad weather, right? It's a curse. And hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So the Father leads us in this. It's not like by your own authority you become Harry Potter now or something. It's by God's authority he sets it in order to reveal us to the world. We are his trophies of grace. That's a big deal to him. Because remember we just talked about before, he could have annihilated all of us. So he kept us around for a purpose. It seems like he's worked all things together for good for for those who are called according to his purpose. We're getting to that, aren't we? Now look at verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up into the present time. That's, that's what a tsunami is. That's what earthquakes are. That's, that's what uh, all this natural disaster is. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly, eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our what? Our bodies. You see how important it is just to take it literally? It's our body. Why does it need to be redeemed? Because it's sinful. Come on, we're waiting for that. For in this we, uh, excuse me, for in this hope we are saved. We are saved by believing Christ is the Savior of the soul and the body. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We're waiting for the resurrection. Verse 26 
In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we're, oh man, I wanted to bring this up last week, but I forgot. What did Jesus say when he prayed? Not my will be done, uh, but your will be done, right? See, where is he saying that other will is? Where is that other will? The flesh, because what did he say to the disciples? The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So you mean even Jesus' perfect flesh had a will that could be diverted by temptation? Yes. Remember, his will wasn't diverted for its inward sinfulness. We get ours inwardly from birth. He got a virgin birth, hit reset, so his flesh was perfect, but it could be tempted in tiredness. Do you think his flesh wanted to nail put through it? Do you think his brain was saying, yes, put a nail there? That's why your brain will act faster than your soul sometimes because you'll do a reaction before you said do a reaction. God made you that way. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why even if someone wanted to kill themselves, let's say there was no technology, no bridge to jump off of, you could only kill yourself by choking. Your lungs would keep gasping. Your lungs would not give up on you even though you did because you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're made on autopilot as a word, but the autopilot's off now, right? That's why it's got to get hit reset, but now you're living in it and you're feeling it, and so what do you want to do? You want to groan. Your spirit wants to groan like you look at yourself in the morning. Oh, oh, Lord, help me. You look at your flesh or you feel your flesh, you groan. And the Spirit is groaning with you because the Spirit is saying, I wasn't meant to be contained in just this. I'm meant to put glory through your veins. Because the Bible says it's not flesh and blood that inherits the kingdom, but flesh and bone. Where did the blood go? It was replaced with glory. That's what makes the flesh of the new kingdom eternal is it's not blood, it's glory. That's what the disciples, uh, that's what the uh, Adam and Eve had. They had so much glory rushing through their body, they didn't even know they were naked. Hallelujah. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Could these wordless groans be considered tongues? Yes, it's part of it. But even those who are not baptized in the Holy Spirit can still have deep groaning in the Spirit. Uh, the tongues will do both, groan and give languages. And so that's why we say never uh, hold back on that and just say all I want is groans. No, have the fullness of the Spirit. Amen? That's why we call it the Spirit-filled life. Because he doesn't just want to groan through you. He wants to give messages through you. He wants to heal through you. Amen? Verse 28. Now do you see the context of this powerful passage? And we know. That in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now let me ask you something. If the verse 20, if 28 comes before verse 29, do you think it's related to it? Do you think verse 28 is re related to verse 29? Yes, and that's why you can't have a Calvinistic interpretation of verse 29. Calvinism is not found anywhere in here because it starts off in verse 28 it says, for those who love him. Isn't the love a choice that we make? That's great, isn't it? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 29. For those God foreknew. Who did he foreknow? Those who would love him. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. He then said, those who will love me, I will predestine to conform them to the image of my son, his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus becomes the firstborn of a new humanity, a godlike humanity, a godly humanity. 
a humanity filled with divinity. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified, took away their sins. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so would you please get the board, because I wanted to share this quickly with you. How does foreknowledge and predestination work together? I have three links there for you because I definitely can't go through it all now. It's a separate message. But let us just understand, first of all, wherever we go from here, we're all giving our best guess. Because at the end of 11, Paul even says, who can understand the mind of God and the mysteries of God? The two greatest mysteries of God are who he is and how he does what he does. Pretty big mysteries, right? How is God three in one? How is God working in past, present, and future? How is he all powerful? How do all things work together for good? Those are big mysteries, but we get insight to them by reading the scriptures. Right here what we get is that foreknowledge is the beginning of predestination. Everybody say foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is before predestination. So we basically have three ways we can look at this. Number one, God does not foreknow until X, Y, and Z actually happen. This is called open theism. What that means is, like how Jesus limited himself when he came to earth, they believe that God has limited his knowledge and only moves where time moves. And if time has not gone to the next second, he and his knowledge has not gone there because it does not exist. How could then he be all-knowing? You ask an open theist, they'll say he knows all that is knowable. The next moment is not knowable. When the next moment is knowable, he'll know all things about it. It's knowable then. Only that which is knowable is that which is created in the past and has already happened in time because he has limited himself in time to only know what happens as time moves on. The biggest problem with that is how does prophecy work? The way that they describe prophecy is God making his best guest. The things that they would say that support this in scriptures, and you have to be ready for them because there's some strong Pentecostal preachers that believe this as well. The street preachers mostly, like if you hear of street preachers, Jesse Morrell and others who I actually love and I appreciate him, but I just don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's right on this. They're open theists because scriptures like this come to, come, come to bear where it says in Jeremiah, you sacrificed your children to idols, you did all of these things. This did not even enter my mind. So what they will say is, it never entered the mind of God that they would get this bad. And so then they truly read through the stories of Noah and that generation where he says it regretted God. Like he set out to do this, he lets time function moving forward, and as he sees it on plane, it repents him. He repents for even making it. Okay. So they'll use scriptures like that, so be ready. But what's the number one thing that we would say is prophecy prophecy. If you use scriptures that have to do with knowing things, you got to make sure they qualify knowing the future because they'll keep saying, I agree, I agree, he knows everything, everything that's knowable. The future is not knowable to anyone, therefore he doesn't have to know it. Okay? 
Now, that is not the way we look at it. But they have a sense that's in common with the Calvinists. And that is, if God knows it ahead of time, and it happens, and it's evil, then that means God determined it. Because they believe that the knowledge God has of the future and it's evil and him not doing something about it makes him responsible. Because that's exactly what the Calvinists believe. The open theists and the Calvinists are on two sides of the same deterministic stick that says if God knows everything, then he must determine everything. The open theist will say, then to get God out of the problem of determining evil, he just must not know it all. Because if he does, the Calvinist is right, he is determining it. And that brings us to Calvinism, which basically teaches everything is determined by God, even evil things. Now, what they will say is, God is not the author, he's the, he is the secondary cause. He is, he is, excuse me, he's the primary cause, but not the secondary causes that bring it about. He creates the devil, and then the devil does what he does, and he's not responsible for it, even though he determined the devil to do what he did. Now, that, to me, is a contradiction. And the way we point it out to them is, if you have a gun, and you say, who murdered so-and-so? And, and then they say, the gun murdered so-and-so. How'd they die? They died of a bullet shot. The Calvinists will say, the gun is responsible and deserves to go to hell. We then ask the Calvinists, who's holding the gun? And then they have to say God, because God determined that the gun would do X, Y, and Z. We use the language of permission that God can know and permit and disagree with. They use the the language of determine. God doesn't just permit. He determines the evil. And the way they get out of it, like I said, is because he created a secondary character called the devil who is now evil. He's not responsible for it. But doesn't it fail when you say who created the devil? But that is where they get stuck right there. And so where are we as Arminians? We adopt the the idea of Molinism, and I want you to click on, let's try the first link. Let's see where it goes. Did I set it up the right way? Jared, can you give me some water, please? Yes, great. Go scroll down, please. I don't have time to get into all the details of this, but this is what we believe. And it's right, because we believe it. Keep scrolling down, sir. So we believe... Keep going. You got to go further. Yep. Okay, go up now. Go up, please. A little bit more. A little bit more. Yep, right here. Go up a little bit more. I thought I saw it. One more up, and we'll be good. Nope, sorry. You were right. Stay right there. We believe that God has a descriptive will, that God has a permissive will, and God has a decretive will. Scroll down a little bit, please. God's descriptive will is it is my will that thou shall not murder. God's permissive will is that God will let man murder if he wants. God then decrees that if the person who murders made their choice, now he makes his choice to send murderers to hell. This is called middle knowledge. Uh, Let me go back, go back, and, and I'll show you how it works, how permissive will works with middle knowledge. You have to go to the top and hit back. All the way to the top of the site. There you go. Now hit back. And we're going to then click on the second link. Is it running a little slow as well? All the internet's running slow today. But Oscar's doing good, isn't he? 
I'm going to show you from William Lane Craig and how he describes it so that you guys can see how God's knowledge operates in three different tiers. Okay, now scroll back down, please, and let's hope that the second link is right because I believe I set these up for our good. Boom, click on that. Nope, I went to his Q&A. Just, just go back, please. It's going to be the third link. I thought I would have time to go more into uh, counterfactuals and different things. And the Bible talks about this. Like when he says, if I would have gone to Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented, but you didn't. You remember he gives the what if, like if I would have did this, they would have done that. Um, he also says to Judas, it would have been better if you would not have been born because he can understand a different plan for Judas if Judas wouldn't have chose otherwise. Okay, so I'm going to explain to you how this works as best as I can, how God's mysterious will works in human history, okay? Five minutes here. Moment one, natural knowledge, God knows the reins of possible worlds. Middle knowledge, God knows the range of feasible worlds. So there is a difference between feasible and possible. Feasible worlds are worlds that do not contradict. No, 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 no. Possible worlds are only worlds that don't contradict. Feasible worlds are then worlds that don't contradict and God's character is maintained. Let me stay there before I go beyond my own understanding, okay? Now, in his world of, in his place of feasible worlds, he then describes what he wants and what he will allow. And then he makes his decree, and now he has the knowledge of all the natural world, what is his decreative will, what he has decreed will happen. So follow me on this. When God looked at what he could create, he looked at all possible worlds, where there would never be a married bachelor, because that's impossible, where, where things would have to be in a certain order. So he's not looking at a nonsensical world. He's looking at an actual possible world. Now that possible world then has to be feasible, one that he can create, get glory out of, and maintain his nature in that world where he gets glory. That, it's just really all about his nature and glory. And what plays into that is how he's going to describe it and give it to us as, as creation and what he will permit. So it's possible and feasible for him to have nothing but robots. He could have had a world of nothing but robots, but that wasn't good enough for him, so he describes a better world than that. It's just like you would have, like if you had a choice between having a pet dog that you could program to, to say hi to you, program to bark, program to do this, or you could have an actual dog. Like, which one would you want to have? And you could do the same thing with a wife. And, you know, let's not answer the question here, husbands or whatever, or wives, you know. What would you want, a spouse? You could push buttons, be happy, you know, cook a dinner. What is, or would you want a real spouse, a real human spouse that has free will? And so we can imagine that God was thinking that same kind of way. He, he wants a world of free creatures, so he's going to have to permit them to do evil. He's going to have to allow them to do evil. But it's not going to be his description of what he wants ultimately but he'll redeem that for his own cause, and he'll decree it to be so, so that nothing will take him off guard. Evil will even work out for his good, but he's not responsible because he really gave them free will. He really gave them permission. And so as I was saying before, the Calvinist and the open theist both fail by saying if God knows it, that must mean he decreed it. 
So the Calvinist goes, well, he did decree it, but he just separates himself from it, so he's not responsible. The gun did it. The gun did it. The devil did it. Evil people did it. But he determined them to do it. And nobody asks, why did the creator determine people to do evil, right? Then in open theism, to get away from it, God doesn't know. God doesn't know. He closes his eyes towards the future and only knows what can be known and knowable things happen in present and past. Because they both say if God knows, he has to be responsible for it. But what do we say? God can know and not be responsible because he makes free agents be responsible. Responsibility is given to those who are responsible. So if he could truly make free creatures that can respond, he could hold them responsible. Now then somebody could say, is he responsible for giving us the choice of good and evil? Absolutely. So somebody could come back and be like, well, I didn't even want the choice of good and evil. I didn't even want the choice to be here. That is God's ultimate choice. Deal with it. Now you have to your choice, good or evil. Do you guys get that? Adam and Eve didn't have a choice of whether or not they were going to be in the garden. It's just you wake up, you're there, now deal with it. Creator creates, here's your options. That's where we end it right there. That's where we end it. It's called theodicy. That's where we end the problem of evil is God said, I would have a problem with evil. I would allow it, but I'll solve it. And anybody who doesn't let the problem of evil be solved will be held responsible for their own decision to reject it. That's why you see built into our system things about the lost people groups because they're not responsible to the same message that we are because they haven't been given in its fullness. We'll get to that later. That's why we got to get to them to give them more information so they have more responsibility, more opportunities. More opportunities, okay? And then the child or the handicap, we don't think they're held responsible the same way. And sometimes people make just guesses. We have no idea about this. There's never spoken anywhere in the Bible about reincarnation. But could God in the kingdom to come allow aborted children, handicapped people all come back and make their own choices? Technically, he could. You know, I mean, but I, I don't know how it's going to be in heaven when you see the aborted child. Do they not have any rewards? Like, I didn't have a chance to get rewards. I was killed in the womb, you know? Does he give them a second chance at life? We don't know. We don't know. We really don't know. But God will be fair. God will be good to them. Are you ready to go back to the passage? Amen. We can go through this all day long. I really just wanted to give you a way to look at it. But it certainly doesn't stand for Calvinism in that way. Let's read this beautiful passage here in closing. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. And who did he choose? Those who would freely love him. Remember we read that already? So it's not like God's just going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I pick a sinner by the toe. And if, you want, if he doesn't love me, I'll never let him go or something. Like I'll make him love me. No. He chooses those he knows, he foreknows will know him because he's permitted it. And he knows it, right? He encompasses it. Okay. It says, how will he, excuse me, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So we're not condemned in Christ. We're free. He's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Isn't that how it sometimes feels? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He conquered, we get the spoils. That's why we're more than conquerors. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any power, nor the height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
One quick thing that people might bring up is they might say, well, who is he interceding for? And again, can Jesus' intercessory prayers fail? So if Jesus knows you're not going to make it, but you're a Christian now, he's praying for you, and then ultimately the Father says, your prayer failed, he didn't make it. And they'll say, he prayed for Peter, and Peter made it, right? But here's how it goes with prayer with Jesus. Jesus knows who's ultimately going to make it because he's already seen the end. And so there's this boat that's called, uh, there's this boat here that's called chosen. And God foreknow or foreknew everyone that will make it by choosing him to go to the other side. He is praying for them that these ones who have chosen him will never be lost. Does he know ultimately, though, those who leave the boat of chosen? Yes. Has he prayed for them to make it? In that sense, no, because he's only praying for those to make it are those who stay in the boat. He's not praying for anyone to make it to the other side that has not stayed in his boat. In other words, on judgment day, he does not feel sorry for you. There's no other prayer he's been praying for the wicked and the sinful. His message has been given to the world. For you to get the intercession of Jesus, you must be in Jesus. Does he ultimately know who makes it and who doesn't? Yes, but does his ultimate knowledge determine it? No, we're still the determiners. He gets the credit, but we get the blessing of being in it. Amen? And then we get credited the faith that he gives us if we choose it. But we don't get credited the salvation. We just get the credit of choosing. And we've already been through that, that why would it be credited to Abraham's account if there wasn't something to credit? The choice is the credit. It's not the work of the law. It's the choice of saying, I want to be in Christ. That's why when people go to hell, it's not God's fault. Because if Calvinism is true, why are they going to hell? Because they were doomed from the womb. If they go to hell here, it's because they didn't choose. That's why the Bible says, choose ye this day who you will serve. I set before you the two ways, you know, blessing in life. You know, all of these things, you know, turn, um, you know, take the, the, the narrow path. You know, turn from your wicked ways. And all of that is the responsibility of the person. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your message in chapter 8. May we always set our minds on the Spirit. May we trust you in suffering, waiting for the resurrection to come. And, oh, Lord, may we uh, trust your love and your great plans for us, knowing that you have foreseen this and that there's nothing in the, in the uh, present or the future we'll face that you haven't already solved and conquered for us to make it all the way. Because what you started, you, you will finish. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. Let's give it up for